Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Milkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil and Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded Energia Consulting, and joined the Oil & Gas Global Network as a podcast host. I invite you to go to the OGGN website and check out all the other podcasts in the network and the new merchandise that's available now. Maybe even pick up the Oil & Gas Upstream t-shirt that reminds us that only the bit finds oil. And don't forget to sign up for OGGN's weekly newsletter, Sunday Update. All the links are in the show notes. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Mark McClure, CEO of ResFrac. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to join today. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Well, ResFrac is kind of famous in my circles. My my former position and the uh, field laboratories that the Department of Energy sponsored. We had 17 field laboratories, 19 sites. It's really a fabulous program. So anyway, I'm going to read your um, resume here briefly. Mark LaCour established ResFrac in 2015 to help operators maximize value through the application of advanced geomechanics and reservoir simulation. Before founding ResFrac, Mark was an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Petroleum and Geosystems Engineering. After earning a Bachelor's of Science in Chemical Engineering and a Master's of Science in Petroleum Engineering from Stanford University, Mark earned a Ph.D. in Energy Resources Engineering at Stanford. Mark, thank you. You've got such a fabulous resume. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks. I, I guess, obviously, I just enjoyed being in school a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I changed my major several times. My undergraduate work is soil science before I finally ended up in petroleum. So yeah. my dad said, you got to graduate in something, finish. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't have to go there. But Mark, um, tell us about ResFrac and some of the exciting things and why it's, you know, why I'm so impressed with it. Well, what ResFrac does, our core is we make an integrated hydraulic fracturing and reservoir simulator. So this was something I conceived when I was working at University of Texas. Uh, I was doing hydraulic fracture modeling at that time. And so that's physics-based simulation of, of the physical processes that actually are involved in creating fractures, propagating fractures, placing prop in. And what I observed was that it's very awkward, particularly in shale, uh, to separate hydraulic fracturing from reservoir simulation. So there's actually two different categories of software. There's reservoir simulators that do production. There's hydraulic fracture simulators that do simulation. Uh, but of course in shale, you know, the reservoir is the hydraulic fractures. And also we have situations like parent-child where you will fracture into a currently producing well or a refract where you produce a well for a long time and then you hydraulically fracture it again. And so separating out the production from the hydraulic fracturing is, is not just kind of inconvenient, but it's, it's the wrong physics, and you can get the wrong answer. So I, I kind of was realizing that limitation about the work that I was doing when I was at UT and I, the limitation that others were doing, and kind of occurred to me, I'm like, well, you know, the industry needs a tool like this, and uh, this happens to be the thing I've spent my whole career specializing in, so I'm kind of the guy for the job. So that was why and at the end of 2015, uh, I decided to, to strike out and, and start my own company. And 
Uh, it was 2018 when we actually had this turned into a commercial product, myself and co-founder Charles Kang. And uh, from that point on, we've, we've really gone gangbusters. Now we're uh, widely used across industry. Majority of the top 20%, 20 companies or so in North America are using our software, as, as well as a lot of smaller organizations, uh, universities, international. Uh, it's really become, really, I think, a, a key tool in the toolbox that the industry uses out there, and in shale especially, but also in geothermal and conventionals, and even in, in CO2 sequestration, we're seeing some applications. Absolutely, absolutely, and it is. It's a, it's a fabulous tool, and I'm I'm happy that it's a it's available now and people can use it. So as I'm thinking about your your resume and where you and where you came from and how you started, so you got your bachelor's and then your master's and then went to UT Austin, or how, what's the how does that how did that work? People, no, I was a professor at UT Austin. So I uh, when I was an undergrad, I intended to go into the oil and gas industry. Uh, chose to major in chemical engineering, but uh, at Stanford, we actually have a wonderful, um, well, it used to be called the Department of Petroleum Engineering when I was a freshman there. Uh, they've changed the name twice since then, uh, but there really is a really outstanding and long, long history of great uh, petroleum engineering, subsurface engineering uh, faculty and, and research that's happened at Stanford. So uh, I did chemical engineering undergrad, always with the intent that I would then get a master's in petroleum, and that was my plan. And so I did you know, oil and gas internships throughout oh. college, um, had a, a very nice job offer from a major oil company going into my fifth year, which was going to be the completion of my, my master's and undergrad degree programs. Uh, but then I, I, uh, I didn't accept that job offer because I wasn't completely sure I wanted to do it. And so that, that fifth year I did uh, research with, with my future advisor, Professor Roland Horn, uh, in his geothermal research program, really fell in love with with doing research and, and found that was very creative, uh, really fit my skill set nicely of, of problem solving. And so um, that, you know, pretty late, maybe that February, I decided uh, I wasn't going to accept my, my job offer. I kind of put them off and delayed them, and I said no, and I went ahead and decided to do a PhD. So I spent three years doing a PhD, um, and then went directly from that at UT, so they hired me as a, as a faculty member there at UT. And I actually thought oh, I was going to okay. basically be a professor my whole career. That was kind of the plan when I took that job. But um, I did get a little bit of the bug to, to go out in the industry. You know, running a company is very different and I think very rewarding than being a, a professor in academia. I miss teaching Absolutely. a lot. Um, you know, I miss research, but I actually do a lot of much of the work that I do at, at ResRAC is sort of like what we would do in, ac in, in academia, only ah. um, it's, it's more applied. You know, I, I get access to a lot more data. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And um, I actually, in many ways, have a lot of advantages uh, compared to when I was in academia uh, from, because, uh, you know, I have a professional staff that works for us and, and we can really, um, you know, do things with, with a bigger budget than, than we kind of pinch pennies in academia sometimes. Well, the the real issue is is that you need all, right? You need the government arm, you need the yeah. um, academics, you need um, the industry, and when you've got all those three points of view together and all the resources that each can provide, that is the the most exciting and the most successful type of relationship, public private partnerships, that yeah. really help to advance the shale um, development. If we hadn't had those kinds of relationships, we would not have been able to um, move as quickly as we did you know the department of energy spent a lot of money in the early years 
in the 80s, um, investing in hydraulic fra- well in horizontal drilling, and then investing in hydraulic fracturing and understanding the nature of fractures and natural, and then creating them. Um, and then the industry put them all together, and that was um, you know what made the shale. I hate using this term shale revolution, but made shale development possible such that we basically broke OPEC is the way I like yeah. to put it. Um, and it was all of those investments, not all of them, but a great deal of those investments that those early investments the Department of Energy made were with universities and the national laboratories and yeah. the research arms of um, private sector organizations. So it's really, you know, really fabulous. Um, anyway, so, okay. Well, I'll, I'll comment so, on that, actually. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll no, you know the, the DOE is continuing to make really, really important um, uh, support to the industry. I mean, in the last decade, there's really been a transformation in our understanding of how hydraulic fracturing actually works um, and just people's mental model for what the fractures look like when you do it in, in shale or in geothermal. And that's really been driven mostly by DOE-funded projects uh, like hydraulic fracture test site one, two, and three. Um, and then I think there's a HFTS one part three or <laughs> the, the name yes, has gotten to be. <laughs> but, um, you know, coring through hydraulic fractures, pulling them out of the ground and looking at them, that is a really big deal. And we've, we've learned a huge amount from that, those projects over the last decade, as well as other things that have happened in industry, like the development of, of fiber, uh, d- distributed, you know, strain sensing and offset wells. Um, I mean, really just, even though I'm not that old, I'm, I'm 38, but even thinking back to when I was 28, um, you know, the field has changed dramatically and, and the DOE's had a big role there. And, I could go on and on about it too, particularly in geothermal. I mean, in geothermal, um, you know, last week I was at the Stanford, not last week, this week, I was at the Stanford geothermal workshop. Two days ago I was there. Um, And it was the highest attendance there's ever been. It was the 49th Stanford geothermal workshop and they they had the most attendees ever. And one of the more striking things was how many uh, oil and gas companies showed up. Oh, Uh, absolutely. (laughs) They're asking questions. There there was a JPT uh, reporter there. He was asking questions. Um, and, and that's been driven because partly private sector, so Fervo Energy, which is a, a, actually a client of, of my company and I'm on their external advisory board, um, has had some really exceptional results both in the drilling and the fracturing side over the past year. Um, but actually, even before that, the reason I think that, that Fervo has been successful is they've done a good job of adopting oil and gas style technologies like multi-stage hydraulic fracturing. But if you go back a little further in time, um, you know, people have had that idea for a long time to use oil and gas multi-stage fracturing for geothermal, but nobody took it seriously until 2014. And in 2014, what happened was the uh, U.S. Department of Energy Geothermal Technologies office put out uh, a big RFP and they said, we're going to go out and we're going to do a project that does multi-stage hydraulic fracturing for geothermal. Um, and I can tell you, because I was at the Stanford Geothermal Workshop that year, there were people that yeah. thought that was crazy. And a lot of people thought that was crazy. Oh. But <laughs> uh, I didn't. I thought it was a great idea. But but a lot of the old guard thought it was crazy. And the, the DOE folks and the GTO, they kind of stuck their necks out and they said, we're going to do this. And after that, it went from this thing that, that people talked about but kind of was poo-pooed in a lot of corners to a thing that everybody took really seriously. And it paved the way for Fervo uh, and others to, to actually make that make that happen. So. 
yeah, I'm a big fan of the DOE for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, okay. Having been on the DOE side, the other side of the story is is that um, for years and years and years there was um, greater and greater interest in geothermal, but but there's not really an, a geothermal industry in the subsurface the way there is in oil and gas in the subsurface, and the whole notion was well, who are the subject matter experts on the subsurface? Well, the oil and gas people are. So yeah. <laughs> we formed this subsurface cross-cutting kind of team at the Department of Energy and shared, you know, and educated the geoscience, pe- the geothermal people, and and other um, subsurface um, applications. Um, as to, you know, what are we doing, how do we do it, and, all the, and then SPE formed the geothermal section or sub, yeah. uh, technical section, section. And then most recently, um, under one of, this, one of these spending bills, um, uh, Congress appropriated dollars specifically for uh, DOE to partner, I should say, um, yeah, DOE Geothermal to partner with the Society of Petroleum Engineers to kind of advance this. Are you familiar with that, that piece of it? Yeah, I think are you uh, referring that, to the geode program? Is that what they call it? No, I, I don't. Yeah. Th- oh, maybe it is called geode. Yeah, I think it is. I think it geode. is geode. Yeah. And we had um, we had the director um, for um, different pieces of it uh, come on uh, come on a previous podcast. It's very exciting. But the whole notion is that um, you know subsurface engineering, subsurface understandings, um, separate from the geological understandings. Um, are what are going to make a geothermal possible, carbon storage possible, you know, um, continue um, to advance, uh, you know, oil and gas and, and uh, indep- uh, energy independence with respect to shale development. Any kind of subsurface storage of energy, um, hydrogen or just, you know, heat, uh, all of these things depend on this expertise. And so it's a real exciting time for um, subsurface engineers, as I sometimes call us. Um, because petroleum engineering is where you know it started and where it continues to advance, and so I'm, I'm really hoping. And then now with all the new capabilities that we have with um, um, the AI, well, I want to say the data analytics, the big data, and the data analytics, and and, uh, and so I'm real excited about it. I don't, I don't mean to steal this interview. This is your interview, yeah. so I no, can't stop it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, this topic is, is why reservoir engineering and reservoir modeling is so important because we're really where the rubber hits the road. Um, I have a lot of conversations with researchers in all sorts of different sectors, and I say, well, why are you doing that? <laughs> you know, my job in ResFrac is to design a system that's going to make money. Go out and design a geothermal well, uh, fracturing design, a long-term configuration that's going to make money. Um, and when you start with that objective, uh, and similarly, you know, in shale, you know, we're going to design the frac job, we're going to design the well and the well spacing. When you start with that objective and work backwards, you often end up doing completely different things um, than than you often actually see people doing out there. So I, I think that's that's what's really important is we we help prioritize what everybody else does in in my view. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, that's why what we do is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so tell us a little bit more about ResFrac and some of your accomplishments in the arena. Um, I understand that there's some application in carbon storage that one of your clients was talking about, or tell us about that. Yeah, carbon storage is certainly not our main business. I, I mean, our main business is around, number one, optimizing well placement and frac design in shale. That's, I would say, 90% of our business. Um, but then we have help, we, we help companies design 
frack jobs in conventional formations. We have one really exciting, cool geothermal client, which is Fervo Energy. Um, but then the CO2 thing is intriguing. Um, you know, first off, you actually, well, actually, there's three reasons why we need to understand hydraulic fracturing relevant to CO2 sequestration. Reason number one is stress estimation. So you're not allowed to inject above the frac radiant when you do CO2 sequestration. And in fact, you have to be at some, you know, safety margin below the frac radiant. Um, and so it's very important to be able to measure what is the frac radiant. Um, and I've had several recent projects where uh, companies have really had trouble measuring the frac radiant. Um, there's just kind of a lot of, I don't know, I'd say kind of gobbledygook out there on how to do stress measurements. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a company come back and, and they were really crestfallen because they had, they'd run a, a frack, uh, a mini frack, and, and they had an incredibly low frack gradient. And they said, well, we're not going to be able to hardly inject into this well at all because the, the stress gradient is so low, we can't use any wellhead pressure. Um, mm. And it was just because they, were, they weren't using the right stress estimation method, and they were like thousands of PSI off on, on the stress estimate. So oh. point one is you need to have fracking experts who understand how to estimate stress. Number two is you might actually do hydraulic fracturing in, in CO2 sequestration wells. There is an application there. Um, and the third one, and the one that I was mentioning to you earlier before the call, um, it's a paper by Mahindra Samaru. He is, um, just finished his PhD at the University of Alberta, and also he works for a regulatory agency in Canada. Um, and he used ResFrac uh, to look at thermal stresses. So uh, ResFrac is a frac and reservoir simulator. So he initializes the model uh, full of water, like a saline aquifer, and then he injects CO2. But it's a thermal simulation. And so as he's, as he's injecting that CO2, which is coming from the surface, it's cooler than the formation because mm. it's in the subsurface. So it's cooling down the rock, the rock starts to shrink. And sure enough, you start to actually make a hydraulic fracture and that hydraulic fracture can open up and it can get pretty big uh, over the course of, of years of injection. Um, so that's something that's not really being considered right now, uh, but it has a variety of effects. It's gonna affect the injectivity over time. It has the potential to affect the, the cap rock sealing uh, capacity. Uh, it also might affect things like um, the, um, you know, the, the five spot, or the well configuration, well spacings, things like that. Uh, so that's a really intriguing paper. It actually just came out in Journal of Petroleum, I'm sorry, SPE Journal. came out in SPE Journal today. Okay. Uh, oh. Mahindra's paper. Let me look it up here. I'll tell you the title of it. I need to, um, let's see. And we can uh, put a link to the show notes uh, about you know sharing this paper if it's available, uh, or at least uh, name the paper. Uh, yeah. And then also we're going to be at the SPE AAPG um, SEG CCUS conference. That's a lot of initials. Uh, carbon storage Car conference or CCUS, but it's storage uh, conference in Houston um, the week of March something March eleventh. Week of March 11th. Well, I should. Yes. Maybe Mahindra should go to that. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. The, the and, title um, of this paper is It's Injection Temperature Impacts on Reservoir Response During CO2 Storage by Mahindra Samaru. It, it was released on uh, today in SBE Journal. Excellent, excellent. Well, absolutely. So um, we do feature CCUS on you know this upstream um, podcast because it's all sort of the subsurface uh, aspects of it. Um, and I even venture into some of the midstream stuff just in that interface because you know the value chain is just all connected. So so it's really important to, for us to be able to to um, be able to talk all about that. So um, so. We were talking also before about um, shale data availability. 
um, and your interest in that arena. You want to share some of your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I guess if you compare my experience in academia, um, it was challenging to get data from, from companies. And it's, it's difficult because there's really no replacement for field-scale data. You can run a model or run a lab experiment, but that's really not the same as, as field-scale data. So um, some of the data that we use now in our modeling that I think is transformative, number one, placing uh, fiber, a, a distributed um, uh, strain sensing in offset wells. Uh, we can count the number of frac hits, where they occur, what the fracture orientations are, and the timing of those frac hits. That's giving us an unprecedented look at really what's happening. Um, number two, uh, there's even been some recent studies where people use pressure gauges in offset wells. Uh, just last week at HFTC, uh, Tim Benish was the first author on a paper from ExxonMobil uh, in the Midland Basin where they drilled a slant well, pure observation well. They never fractured it. They just uh, put pressure gauges and, and, and fiber all along it, uh, and then they fracked and produced the adjacent well. They can basically see what is the distribution of pressure as a function of distance uh, away mm -hmm. from a producing well and shale. So these sorts of, of data are transformative. Um, and from my perspective, when I was in academia, I was just begging for little bits of that kind of stuff. But, but now what we do with ResFrac, uh, half of our business is we sell software licenses to clients, and the other half is, is we do consulting projects for clients. And so we oh, get to spend excellent. a lot of time working with data. Yeah, we have five people who work full-time doing uh, you know, consulting projects basically for clients. They each do about three projects at a time. So at any given time, at least right now, we're doing about 15 or so projects for, for different clients. Um, and so, you know, we really get to, to talk through these things with people. And, and, and now we've kind of built up this library of experience across all the, the shale plays of North America. And, um, you know, what we really find is, is the story tends to be pretty consistent. Um, and a lot of things that I found kind of, you know, bewildering a decade ago are, are kind of routine now. So there really is a lot of value in just having that kind of perspective of, of really looking at this high quality field data. That, and also I think the industry has gotten great about publishing. And, and you know, the fact that ExxonMobil last week published a really informative paper and they didn't keep that all secret, you know, kind of shows right. I think there's a bit of a culture shift in the industry that, that people are more open and, and more collaborative right now. Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's very true because um, you, what is it, the, um, the synergy that is possible when you pool your resources in that way for, you know, advancing everyone. And, um, and, and that's so important right now. Uh, yeah. we and you know what, I'll give you, I'll give you another example. Um, yeah. Last year, we did a, a study with Devon Energy on interference test interpretation. Um, we thought there was opportunities. So interference testing is when you um, are m monitoring pressure in one well and you haven't started producing from it yet. And then you start producing from a neighboring well and you can see how that offset well production affects the pressure in the first well. And the magnitude of the pressure change or the rate of pressure change can tell you something about you know, the, the formation properties between those two wells. Uh, so we saw some real opportunities to improve on the kind of state of the art of how people do that in shale. So we did a, a, a project with Devin, developed, I think, a really great method. In fact, it's such a good method, we just developed a special, what we call it Res Apps, a special web app tool to implement this new method. Um, that I, it's a big improvement over the past method. Um, you get a more accurate answer. It it's, it's goes straight into the modeling. Um, and so we invented that with Devin, and then we said, guys, you know, we should publish this. We should let the whole industry know about this method. Uh, 
first, because we want to get back to the industry, and number two, because somebody else might improve on it. So we right. did. So Muin Al-Masudi was the first author on that paper. Uh, we published this paper. It's on the, quote, Devon Quantification of Interference Method, DQI Method. Published that last year in a journal. Um, and um, then later in the year, uh, we were working with a group of operators, um, uh, ExxonMobil, Apache, Hess, and um, um, ConocoPhillips. Uh, and they said, hey, we want to do some follow-up work on that. So we actually did some follow-up work. We've extended that DQI work that we did with Devin, and we're going to have a paper about that at Urtech. So it, it's oh, cool how, how we can get there, right? And, and then what we've done within ResFrac is we've built a web app so that we're going to actually allow anybody in the industry to, to use that, that method using our, that tool. So uh, it, it's really cool how, you know, people, you know, that's how academia is supposed to work, right? You know, you're putting ideas out, other people are building on them, and we're kind of progressing, and everybody's winning over time. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, what beautiful, beautiful examples. So, so do you have thoughts as a, a former um, uh, professor and then being now on the cutting edge of a, of a company that's doing so many wonderful things with respect to the fact that a lot of young people don't consider the oil and gas sector as very glamorous? Do you have any thoughts about encouraging people to study petroleum engineering? Yeah, I mean, first off, you know, when I was in college, in, in 2004, a quantitatively inclined guy like me, um, the obvious thing to do was to go into finance. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. The, the, it's a competition. The easy, and you're not path. leaving it in oil and gas, right? <laughs> right, right. You know, majoring in economics and going into private equity or banking or something, that is sort of the, the, the basic thing I could have done. Um, but, you know, in 2004, I was going, you know, I don't understand how these guys make any money. <laughs> of course, what I didn't know is that the financial crisis was going to happen. They weren't making any money. <laughs> Nobody knew. Nobody. They were making funny money. Um, but, but, you know, what I want to do with my career is, is feel like I'm really, you know, contributing and contributing to society. And, and there's different ways that people do that. There's many different ways. But what I think one way is, you know, when you, when you start your car or you, you flip the light switch and the lights come on, you know, there's a lot of work that somebody had to do to make those things happen, right? Energy really is the thing that our society is, is built on and, and our standard of living and our, you know, technology. Um, and, and, you know, somebody's got to do the work to make sure that that happens, you know, and it, it, maybe it's probably not as, as glamorous as other certain other things you could be doing with your career, but, but I think it's a very noble and, and dignified thing to do with your career. So um, that, that appealed to me that I wanted to be some kind of engineer. Um, and as far as why did I go specifically into petroleum engineering, you know, maybe because I'm from Houston and, you know, I, I don't have any family background in, in the industry. But, of course, it was all around me growing up. Absolutely, um, yeah. So that was probably, you know, some, something of a factor. Um, but I actually just found it really intellectually interesting. You know, when I was an undergrad, um, even though I majored in chemical engineering, I always took one class in petroleum. So, actually, by the time that I finished my senior year, I'd almost finished my master's degree. Um, but that was always my favorite class, was in petroleum engineering. I always found it the most interesting. Um, and, and I just really enjoyed, um, you know, maybe... Maybe we just had great faculty in petroleum engineering, but we had great faculty in other departments too. You know, I, I just love the, the challenge of, you know, we can't see this thing that's happening. It's happening two miles below the surface of the earth. We have some data, but we don't have perfect data. We're gonna have to do a lot of critical thinking. We've gotta put things together. Um, and then ultimately, you know, make a decision that's gonna affect the deployment of millions of dollars of capital, um, or billions of dollars of capital. 
and, yeah. and I love that that puzzle and that kind of the little bit of the mystery, a little bit of decision making under uncertainty, um, the critical thinking. You know, I just I just find that uh, very engaging. So you know, I'm not bored at work very often. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, you said everything that um, I always talk about in terms of why I do what I do, why I de- dedicated my, you know, 40 years in the oil sector to to doing, you know, to the subsurface um, and how exciting it is. And even though I retired, I'm still back talking about it because there's yep. so much to learn. I mean, it's a, a natural system that we're intersecting with an engineered system and engineering yep. science continues to, to evolve and uh, the earth continues to evolve as well and you put those two things together and you've got a really valuable uh, commodity for mankind that really lifts all and if we really want to help you know other people in other countries uh, sort of uh, improve their quality of life uh, we need to be able to uh, produce oil and gas and all other forms of energy you know because um, everybody uh, needs it and everybody have, can use it. And it, it just takes a little bit more energy in order to really advance and lift people out of poverty. So thank you, Mark McClure, CEO of ResFrac. We so enjoyed having you here today. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.